For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Madison. Our hope is to provide you with short episodes that help you learn about drug prohibition and its harms and possible solutions, as well as to invite you to change your mind in support of solutions that reduce harm and increase thriving for all of us. One of the biggest questions in people's minds when we talk about legalizing all drugs is the current opioid epidemic. Um, and so they say, well, look what's happening with legal opioids. It's an absolute disaster of death and destruction. And you want to bring all drugs into that kind of mayhem? That's so crazy. So we wanted to actually take a whole episode today and deal with what's really happening with the current opioid crisis, which is different than the narrative that we have kind of about it in um, a lot of our mainstream media. So we have Dr. Jeffrey Singer with us today. Um, Dr. Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and works in the Center for the Study of Science in the Department of Health Policy Studies. He's principal and founder of Valley Surgical Clinics Limited, the largest and oldest group private surgical practice in Arizona. He writes and speaks extensively on regional and national public policy with a specific focus on the areas of healthcare policy and the harmful effects of drug prohibition. He received his BA from Brooklyn College and his MD from New York Medical College, and he is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons. Dr. Singer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that we really want to dial in on is the difference between um, prescription uh, opioid overdose deaths and illicit drug overdose deaths. So since 2010, about 16,000 um lives have been quote-unquote saved from overdosing and dying on prescription opioids. So 2010, the government um, started to begin this kind of crackdown response to prescribing. So we began to see this trend line over a couple of decades increasing with um, opioid overdose deaths. In 2010, the government begins the process of cracking down on that. Um, And you will see that prescription Prescriptions have decreased since then, opioid prescriptions, and the trend line of prescription opioid deaths um, has not gone up at the rate at which it was going up before. But, and this is a big but, and this is what the whole episode today is on, as a result of those prescription crackdowns that lowered the supply of legal opioids, a total of about 89,000 more people have died from heroin and fentanyl overdoses than would have otherwise if those trends lines had stayed at their current rate. So in short, there there's a lot of people who are dead now that would not have been dead if we had actually done nothing in 2010. And if those trend lines had continued, um, and they were increasing, they have been increasing for several decades, but the response of cracking down on prescriptions has actually increased the death toll by many, many, many thousands of people. So if we base it on the 2017 numbers for the Centers for Disease Control, for every one fewer people that are dying from prescription opioids due to cracking down on prescriptions, there are nine more people that are dying from heroin and 
fentanyl overdoses. Um, and it's not even really probably correct to say that we saved that one person. It could be that same person is dying. They're just dying from a different cause of death that they switched over to illicit drugs as their prescription supply became unobtainable. Um, so that's really not part of uh, a lot of what we're hearing um, in mainstream media. We're hearing that the problem is um, doctors prescribing too many opioids, people taking legal opioids, and um, ending up overdosing and dying. And what you really see if you dig into the numbers is that uh, prescriptions are not our leading cause of this opioid overdose death crisis that we're in, which is extremely tragic, but actually illicit drugs are, which are far more dangerous because you don't know what's in them. So Dr. Singer, we want to start with just really answering some basic questions because when I started learning about these issues, I did not know what what these illegal drugs even did, how they affected your body. I just thought they were kind of crazy drugs, and they just made you do crazy things, and people just died doing crazy drugs. Um, so help us understand first just even what's going on when somebody overdoses. What happens to the body? Why does that happen? Why is it now so much more common um, with street drugs than with prescribed drugs? What happens there in that, that transition from a, a regulated supply of something to a illegal supply? Help us understand what's going on. Well, uh, first of all, people use the term opioids, uh, and they oftentimes use it very liberally when it should be, they, sh- they should be more specific. So, for example, example, fentanyl, which is a very powerful opioid, is an opioid. So is uh, Percocet or oxycodone, which those, the last, all of these, by the way, are prescription opioids. They're pharmaceutically made. But so when, when we hear in the media there were you know, X amount of opioid deaths, that gives the uh, impression to listeners that, that the deaths are caused by prescription painkillers that doctors write. But um, illicit fentanyl, uh, heroin, um, and combinations of, of, of uh, various types of fentanyls and heroin are also opioids. Opioids is an entire category. And if we break it down on specifics, uh, according to the latest numbers from 2017 from the CDC, there were uh, first of all there were a total of 70,000 total overdose deaths. Again, the media tends to make you think those are opioids. The total deaths include deaths from methamphetamine, cocaine, um, uh, ch- certain kind of tranquilizers, and, and other drugs. Out of those 70,000, 47,000 were opioid related. But out of those. Forty percent were from fentanyl. Um, it's actually seventy-five percent were from heroin or fentanyl. Out of the prescription-type drugs that doctors write, thirty um, percent of, of the people who were listed as deaths from prescription drugs, those people also had fentanyl in their system, and sixty-eight percent had multiple drugs in their system. So if you would take out all that and you just allow for how many people died of an overdose from taking a prescription painkiller that doctors prescribe was roughly 10% of all of the overdose deaths in 2017. Yet we're led to believe that we just got to get these doctors to prescribe less of these prescription opioids and we'll get the deaths down. So what people, people don't understand is that, um, first of all, opioids refer to a broad category of drugs. And I think we should change the terminology to say heroin and fentanyl-related deaths because they make up the majority of the deaths. The way people overdose is... These opioid-type drugs affect receptors in the brain that um, create a feeling of wanting to sleep and also a feeling of euphoria, wellness, 
you can give you the high and the buzz that people enjoy. It's much like when you're, you know, like a lot of people get from alcohol. But in addition, they also work on certain receptors in a different part of the brain that control your respiratory rate. So if you take too much of any of the opioids, they could suppress your respiration to the point where you're not taking any breaths on your own. And if you're also falling asleep from the other effects of the opioid, you're not awake enough to realize you're not breathing. So you just go to sleep and stop breathing, and that's usually how you die from an overdose. Um, because you don't, when you're not breathing, of course, you don't get any oxygen, and then you have a cardiac arrest and, and, and die. The main thing is that we have this false narrative. Everybody bought into uh, an easy explanation. Uh, you know, these doctors overprescribed painkillers to us, and they turned us all into drug addicts, and, and that's why everybody's dying. But if you look at the numbers, like I say, the numbers, uh, the overall majority of people who are dying from non-medically using opioids are people who are dying from opioids other than prescription painkillers. Now, people who cling to the old narrative say, yeah, but, but, but th those are, that population of people, they're all created by doctors prescribing painkillers to people, and now, now they're just, they're just, uh, we just got to get them, get the doctors to stop prescribing painkillers to people, and then this population will eventually kind of be dealt with. Either people will overdose and die, or we'll get them into rehab, and, and the problem will go away. But in fact, this has always been primarily uh, uh, an expression of non-medical users using drugs in the black market, which is made dangerous because of prohibition. Right from the get-go, we're told in the, in the standard narrative that, uh, that drug salesmen uh, bandied around uh, nothing but a simple letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine that came out in, the early, in 1980 that purported to say that prescription painkiller opioids were safe and had a low addictive potential and a low overdose rate. And that is what fooled the doctors into, into prescribing. But in fact, going back to the early 1970s and throughout the 80s, there were numerous scientific studies showing that given in a medical setting, opioids, prescription-type opioids, actually had a very low addictive potential and a, an extremely low overdose potential. And even Recent studies, modern studies from today, show the same thing. For example, um, in the uh, just a few years ago, two they're called Cochrane systematic analyses. The Cochrane people in, in the healthcare research field know about the Cochrane studies. Cochrane studies are extremely rigorous studies, and they're affiliated with the World Health Organization. The, their findings are considered extremely reliable, and they they were two very large Cochrane systematic reviews of people who are chronic pain patients non-cancer pain patients receiving opioids long-term, and they found an addiction rate of roughly 1%. Uh, a study came out almost exactly one year ago to the date that was published uh, by researchers at Harvard and Johns Hopkins in, in, in BMJ, used to be called the British Medical Journal. They, they followed 568,000 patients in the Aetna database from the years 2008 to 2016 who were given prescription painkillers um, for acute pain, mostly post-surgical pain. And they monitored them for all of these diagnostic codes that are entered in the entered database called misuse codes, which is a broad range. Misuse on one extreme is you had some leftover Percocet, let's say, from your surgery, and you got a terrible headache, so you took a Percocet for the headache. That's misuse. On the other extreme, of course, is addiction. Well, they found out of 568,000 people followed for eight years, there was a total misuse rate of 
0.6%. And in, in numerous studies, uh, a, a big study done in, uh, for, uh, in 2011, following 2.2 million patients in the state of North Carolina, this was a University of North Carolina study, given prescription opioids, found an overdose rate of 0.022%. And out of those, almost two-thirds had multiple other drugs on board that they shouldn't be, have been using. So that's an interesting also, point. The, the famous study uh, that was published in JAMA years ago that has led to a lot of these states to pass these restrictions on the dosages, that study looked at 155,000 VA patients prescribed opioids for chronic pain over four years, and they found a total overdose rate of 0.04%. So, in fact, um, the science shows that prescription opioids given in the medical setting to patients actually do have a low addiction potential and a low overdose potential. And the majority of overdoses we see all the time in, in, in our CDC data are overdoses from people who have taken multiple drugs. And the, usually the drugs they're taking are not the drugs that you see associated with patients under medical supervision. For example, in New York City's data, most recent data, they found that 75% of the overdose in the city of New York were from heroin and fentanyl, and 97% of those people had multiple drugs on board. 46% of the time, the drug was cocaine. This is not the profile of a patient. So, so how do we get into this, uh, this uh, false narrative? Well, the, the fact is that when you have drug prohibition, of course, it creates uh, incentives for people who can be corrupted because there's an opportunity to make a lot of money in a black market since it's prohibited. So there's no question there were doctors who have, many of them, you know, we've read about in the papers, they were arrested. There were doctors who were selling prescriptions to non-medical users. Uh, there was one doctor arrested in Orange County, California, selling prescriptions at a Starbucks for $600 a prescription for OxyContin. Um, there was, uh, you know, well-publicized uh, uh, doctors in Florida that, who were supposedly pain specialists, and they had arrangements worked out with drug dealers so the drug dealers would actually fly in people, and they give them gift cards and all sorts of perks. They actually dubbed it the Oxy Express. They come down to Florida. They were told go to, and they pay these people, and they say go to doctor so and so. This is what you tell him. He will give you a prescription. Then make sure you go to this pharmacy and ask for this pharmacist. He will fill it, and and of course everybody made and then bring the prescription, bring you know fill the prescription and bring it to me, and then of course he would deal with it. So these were these were. Basically, doctors and pharmacists who were not really practicing medicine or pharmacy, they were drug dealers. Um, I would argue that that was also a consequence of prohibition because when you have a black market, there's an opportunity for illegal people, because it's illegal, to make a lot of money in a black market. And all humans, unfortunately, every one of us is corruptible, and those who are more corruptible fall easy prey to these kind of incentives. Um, uh, so here's some, some data that should persuade people that it has nothing to do with primarily with doctors, even though these, these anecdotes, of course, feed the narrative, and 
people like simple explanations, so they provide a simple explanation. Yeah, and so, before you get into that, I want to just mm-hmm. highlight the point that you made about um, drug mixing, because a lot of times people will say, well, you know, they had fentanyl in their system. Um, but in reality, there's the fentanyl that's in our heroin supply is a result of drug prohibition. We would never be having fentanyl in, in heroin in a regulated market. And fentanyl on its own is not a um, deadly uh, drug when it's used correctly for for medical purposes. It does have medical purposes. That's there's fentanyl patches oh, that yeah. you know I lost so both my parents to cancer. So years. cancer patients use fentanyl patches for pain management. Um, but we have this kind of now very demonized view of of fentanyl, and we have kind of forgotten that fentanyl is is a useful um, it's a useful drug. It's been used for many many years. How it's become so deadly is now it's being used in an illegal, illicit market where we don't have any regulation over it and we don't know how much is in uh, heroin. The chances of overdosing are a lot higher if fentanyl is present because it's so much more uh, potent. So again, that kind of uh, that the overdose is being driven by all of the by drug mixing. And even for people um, maybe who are using prescription drugs, Often when you look into a toxicology report, there's more than one drug present. They're either mixing alcohol with an opioid, which is, you know, using, uh, you know, two depressants at the same time or, you know, something like that where where it's not just the one drug. It's the combination of what happens in your body with all of the substances um, that are present. So you have written recently about shifting from a war on drugs to a war on drug-related deaths, which uh, I think most people think that's the same thing. They think that the war on drugs is a war on drug-related deaths. So help our uh, help us understand what is the what's the difference there um, that you see from kind of we just kind of force this uh, crackdown approach versus. Um, a, how can we actually shift that to see a war on drug-related deaths? Well, it, you make a good point. Fentanyl, by the way, has been around for many years. It's used in anesthesia. It's used in critical care patients. And the, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, has told us that almost exclusively, every time they seize fentanyl, it's this powdered form, which is not – we don't give this to patients in a powder form. It's either in the, an injectable form or in these patches, like you mentioned – and so it, it's manufactured in overseas labs and comes in largely through the mail. And, and then uh, drug dealers will use this to uh, either they'll cut heroin with it to make it so that uh, increases the potency of heroin so that it could, heroin could be smuggled in in smaller uh, sizes. Or it, people operate pill presses and they press them into counterfeit pills so that people who are trying to use uh, drugs on the black market, and they think they're purchasing something like Vicodin or Oxycodone or one of the prescription-type painkillers, so uh, they don't realize that it's actually fentanyl that's been pressed into it, and it's so much more powerful that they stop breathing. In fact, that's how Prince died. We found out he, he liked to non-medically use Vicodin. He never went to a doctor once, according to medical records. He had a dealer get him the Vicodin, and, and this time the Vicodin was actually counterfeit Vicodin, and it was made of fentanyl. That's why he stopped breathing. And you're also right that multiple other drugs are, are usually in, on board when these patients die because it's other drugs like uh, alcohol or tranquilizers like uh, uh, you know Xanax that potentiate the uh, effects of opioids and make you fall asleep faster and also make you stop breathing faster. And typically, when we doctors prescribe to patients and when pharmacists fill these prescriptions, patients are instructed. 
not to use these with alcohol and other drugs. So again, this is not the profile of a patient, but rather the profile of a person who's non-medically using in, in the black market. And economists talk about the iron law of uh, prohibition, which is prohibition tends to drive the development of more potent, more dangerous drugs. During alcohol prohibition, they weren't smuggling in beer and wine, they were smuggling in whiskey. And that's because if you're going to take the chances as a smuggler, you want to, you, you, you want to get, you smuggle in something that's more potent that you can subdivide more into smaller bits and make more money on. Uh, and uh, many people would argue that if it wasn't for cocaine prohibition, that wouldn't crack cocaine, which is much more powerful, wouldn't have been invented. Well, the same thing happens here. So the prohibition is actually encouraging drug smugglers to smuggle in fentanyl. First of all, it's easier to smuggle in because you can send it in through the mail. You don't even have to worry about trying to get across the border with it. Uh, plus, it's so much more powerful that you could use a small amount and go a much longer way selling it to people. And like I said, you could actually uh, add it to, to certain things to enhance their potency so you could s sell it to pe people in smaller amounts and make more money uh, on the amount you smuggled in. So it, it's drug prohibition is actually fostering the development of more dangerous and more potent drugs, e even marijuana, marijuana prohibition. People talk about how the marijuana today is much more potent than it was back in the 70s. Well, that's largely because prohibition. Uh, if you're going to take the risks and, and smuggle, you're going to try to smuggle in more potent uh, compounds. Um, now, since we decided back in the early part of this century that this was all caused by doctors overprescribing, all of the policies that we've had in place have been aimed at getting the doctors to cut down on prescribing. So there's been a dramatic decrease in the amount of prescription opioids that have been written. In fact, doctors have been put on surveillance. Every state now has a surveillance board where when, when a doctor writes a prescription, they have to check in with the board. They're being uh, monitored. If the doctor writes more prescriptions than the board thinks the doctor should, they suddenly get a visit from the government, and oftentimes doctors are indicted for operating pill mills. And this has cast a, a chilling effect on the practice of medicine. So more and more doctors are actually afraid to prescribe any painkillers because they don't want to be falsely accused of operating a pill mill. We, we read these horror stories all the time as doctors. So now what's happening is prescriptions are way down. In fact, high-dose prescription painkillers are down over 50% since 2010. Yet the overdose death rate continues to increase uh, in this past year between 2017 and 2016. The latest numbers we have, there was another 13% increase in overdose deaths just in, in that one year. So the prescriptions are down, but overdoses are up. And the other thing, if you look at the numbers from the government, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, every, since 2002, they've been, every year they do a survey. And between 2002... 2014, the, the annual percentage of non-medical adult users of prescription painkillers, non-medical, so this is, you know, not, this is for recreational use or whatever, the percentage year after year between 2002 and 2014 was essentially unchanged. Also, according to the government survey, the percentage of people with what they then called prescription painkiller use disorder between 2002 in 2014 was unchanged. Meanwhile, the, the uh, number of prescription painkillers written, prescriptions written between 2002 and 2014 doubled. 
So what should that tell anybody about the relationship between doctors writing prescriptions and non-medical users using or abusing drugs in the black market? I mean, you see no relationship because the prescription rate has doubled, yet the rate of non-medical use or abuse stayed the same. So there is no relationship. So all we're doing by cutting down on the numbers of prescriptions that doctors could write is, number one, we're making people who really need pain relief, whether they're acute post-op patients, and I see this now where I practice, where people have major operation, have these huge incisions, and they're discharged from the hospital with like a day's worth of painkiller, and then they need to call to get a refill, and the doctor's afraid to give him a refill because he doesn't want to get arrested for over-prescribing. Uh, you got that. You got people who are have chronic pain patients who are on chronic, relatively high-dose prescription painkillers that allow them to, to have a life, to go to work, and suddenly their doctor's telling them, I'm going to have to cut you off because they're afraid. And now they're, they're in agony. Some of them, there are reports of people resorting to suicide. Some are resorting to the black market to get their relief where they don't know if what they're getting is the real thing or something much more dangerous. So we're, and then all of these non-medical users who, who liked to use prescription painkillers because that was their, their sort of drug abuse of, of choice, as they're getting less access to prescription painkillers that uh, are what, what they call diverted into the black market. Because, you know, they get people uh, rob medicine cabinets, they rob pharmacies or whatever. So that's what's called diverted. So as the non-medical users are having more and more of a difficulty getting oxycodone and those kind of drugs to, to use, they're just migrating over to the other stuff, which is easier to get and actually cheaper now because uh, it's more available. So we're actually driving all of these non-medical users to the more dangerous stuff. We're driving up the death rate of people who are using drugs for non-medical purposes at the same time that we're making people who need these drugs for medical purposes suffer needlessly and unnecessarily. And, and, uh, and if we instead changed our focus, our, what, our goal shouldn't be we don't want you to use this particular chemical substance because we don't approve of it. Our focus should be is we don't want you to die. That's what everybody is alarmed about. Each year when, when we hear announcements of the, the overdose rate went up another 10% or 15% or whatever, what's alarming to us is not that people were using the drug. What's alarming to us is how many people are dying, and these are young people many times. These are people who you know, are friends and relatives. Everyone now has, could tell a story of someone they know. So our goal should be that we want to see less people die. If you want to see less people die, then we have to stop doing the things that drive these people to more dangerous substances. So what would we be the thing? We also have to use strategies, which have been around for 30 or 40 years, called harm reduction, where we basically accept the fact that we're never going to have a completely drug-free society. There are always going to be people who are going to dabble in these things uh, in the black market, and uh, we should therefore try to take the steps to make it less dangerous when they do, because we don't want to see these people die. We don't want to see these people spread disease. So programs like uh, methadone or suboxone, what's called medication-assisted treatment, these are ways of basically helping people um, uh, get off of, uh, ultimately get off of their addiction, but in the meantime, uh, use safer drugs. Um, programs like needle exchange programs or s- safe injection facilities uh, are geared towards making people 
less likely to spread HIV and hepatitis by sharing needles. This is not even a, not meant to be an endorsement of the use of these drugs, but it's realistic. It's facing the facts that there are always going to be some people who are going to use these drugs, and our number one concern is we don't want to see people die. We don't want to see people spread disease. So, uh, you know, we were taught as medical students right from the day one, first, do no harm. And I would argue that our prohibition is doing lots of harm by driving people to more dangerous things and by making it more likely that people are going to either spread disease or die from using products that our government institutionally disapproves of. And that's, that's a great that's point. Approach. So what would you say? So we, we, if people have been able to follow along our uh, logic the whole time and the numbers and the numbers speak for themselves on this, um, and they say, so what, what can we do? What we're doing isn't working. We keep cracking down. More people are dying, even though uh, the goal of the, the crackdowns is, is supposed to be that less people are dying. We see the, ab- the opposite of that happening. So if they said to you, Dr. Singer, what could you do? What can we do now? What would you do if you had a magic wand? How can we actually decrease the death rate that we're seeing from overdoses? What would you tell them? Well, if I had a magic wand, I would take a look at what they've done in Portugal. In, in 2001, Portugal had the highest uh, overdose rate in Europe, and they were using the same methods that are used here in the United States. So they finally said, you know, this isn't working. Let's try something different. And if you, if you read the transcripts from the minister in Portugal at the time who dealt with this, he said this wasn't – we didn't view this as a capitulation – in the drug war, we view this as a change in strategy. And they basically decriminalized drugs. So they said that we're no longer going to arrest people and treat them like criminals. Technically, they didn't make it legal. They just decriminalized it, which, in my opinion, is not as good because you're still making people have to use stuff that they obtained on the black market. So you can't be sure as to its purity or quantity. But they stopped treating them like criminals, and all the efforts that they were had been placing into you know, arresting and incarcerating these people, they put instead into making harm reduction programs available. So 15 years later, what they found is they have the lowest overdose rate in the entire European Union. They have six opioid overdoses per million population compared to the U.S., which has over 312 per million. They also found they had a 75% reduction in heroin addicts in Portugal. And they also had a reduction in teen drug use. Um, what started happening is as as uh, people with drug problems no longer feared that they were going to be treated as criminals, they actually started coming forward out of, the, out of hiding, out of the shadows, and sought help. And when policemen would see someone using drugs, instead of arresting them, they would, of course, tell them, don't do that, because it, they, it they didn't want them to do that, but then they would, they would try to get them into help. They would say, I can get you into some rehab program. Would you like me to do that for you? And when people were no longer afraid of the police, they no longer viewed them as the person they had to run from, they actually took advantage of that. So um, I realize politically it's asking an awful lot in the United States for us to consider decriminalizing drugs, let alone legalizing drugs. But what we should at least consider is what they they have done in, in place of all of the incarceration and all of the law enforcement, which is harm reduction, which, by the way, Almost every other country in the developed world has also put their emphasis on it. Harm reduction is very prominent throughout the European countries, U.S., I mean, I'm sorry, U.K., 
Canada, Australia. Um, so, for example, uh, every developed country in the world except the United States has what they call safe injection rooms. In the United States, they do have needle exchange programs. They've been in this country since the 80s, but they're very spotty, and some states have very strict drug paraphernalia laws, which make it difficult for needle exchange programs to function. So a needle exchange program, obviously, is someone comes, uh, gives you their needle they've been using, and you give them a clean one, the idea being that that way you're decreasing the risk of spreading disease. Unfortunately, once they take their clean needle and syringe, they still go somewhere and they inject whatever it was they got, and there's nobody there to save them if they overdosed. And if after they use the needle a few times, they end up sharing it or selling it. So it's not perfect, but the data shows that there's definitely been a significant drop in the spread of disease with needle exchange programs. But most countries, except the U.S., have taken it a step further and have what they call supervised injection rooms. Uh, they're, they're, these exist in Canada and Australia and all throughout Europe. So in this case, and it, it would make sense uh, if you just hear how it works, somebody comes in with their you know, illicitly obtained drug, and instead of being given a clean needle and, sir, and, and syringe and, and walking off, they, they inject the, whatever it is they have with them in the presence of a professional in this clinic. And then after they're done injecting, they have to return the needle and syringe to the people there who discard it so it doesn't get shared with others or sold. In addition, the people are standing there with the, over, the overdose antidote naloxone, so in case the, the person overdoses, they could save their life. And in addition to that, these people are... Also, they're trying to coax them into getting help and getting into rehab. In every place this has been tried, it's been found that this dramatically, number one, drops the overdose rate, number two, drops the spread of disease, and number three, actually increases the number of people getting help and getting into rehab because there's, they view, obviously, these, the people running these safe injection rooms as friends rather than enemies. They trust them, and uh, they usually... Uh, are much more uh, willing to take them up on their offer to get help. Um, but unfortunately, our federal government won't allow those to exist in this country. So, uh, and then, of course, there's the methadone programs in, in many countries, like uh, in, in Canada, the U.K., and in Australia, doctors can prescribe methadone on, to patients from their office, just like nowadays doctors can prescribe Suboxone, another type of medication-assisted treatment. But in the United States, you have to get jump through all of these regulatory hoops to have a methadone clinic, and then the person has to take the methadone in your presence and then leave. So if you live in a rural area or an, area, an underserved area, you may have to drive 100 miles each day to the methadone clinic to take your pills in front of the people at the clinic. That's not practical, which is another reason why you're not seeing a lot of, a lot of, of uh, patients and people with addiction problems take advantage of it. Whereas if we allowed methadone to be prescribed by doctors, who are interested in treating addiction on an ambulatory basis where they follow them in their office, just like they can with Suboxone, I think we'd see it work much more effectively. I think that's a great um, point and something to, to highlight about what these programs do, because for, for people that are coming from kind of a mindset that I came from, you, you hear uh, needle exchange and you hear, you know, uh, safe injection sites, which are also called overdose prevention sites. Um, and you go, oh, I, you know, this, this feels like we're facilitating drug use. And um, it was really helpful for me to hear somebody uh, say in an article that I wrote, you, you cannot help people who are dead. 
once they're dead, their opportunity for helping is gone. And what they're seeing with these touches with healthcare, which is what needle exchanges and overdose prevention sites offer, is that it draws people into a community that can provide them help. Instead of pushing them away from it, it provides consistent touches with people who are saying, hey, how are you? How can I help you? What kind of help are you open to receiving today? And focusing on how do we keep them alive, how do we help them to be healthy, and how do we draw them into a net of care instead of scaring them away from a net of care? I once once, uh, saw a critic say uh, about the idea of safe injection rooms. Uh, That's like giving the keys to a a car to a drunk driver. And the response was no. It's like making sure your drunk driver gets home alive. Hmm. And and, and that's basically you got to change the emphasis – uh, it's it, harm reduction is non-judgmental. It's not advocating this kind of behavior, but it's realizing that there are always going to be people who are going to do this. And you just don't. Your 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 goal is you want to see less people get hurt or die, and that's what should be motivating you. And and uh, and you just got to take your personal beliefs about what they're doing out of it. Now, an example. Uh, it's very similar to people who take, for example, nicotine patches or chew nicotine gum for for nicotine addiction, these smokers. So, in a way, we've uh, we, we we they're still addicted to nicotine when we substituted the cigarette for with, with uh, the nicotine patch or with the chewing gum, but they're not breathing all those dangerous toxins and tars into their lungs that are going to increase their risk of getting lung cancer and COPD. Then the whole idea behind medication-assisted treatment is, number one, uh, stabilize the person's life so, and, and, and make things safer. So, for example, if there's a, an IV drug user or a heroin user, uh, and I'm able to get that person uh, to avoid the pains of withdrawal by substituting it with oral methadone. So what's happening is technically at this moment they're still chemically dependent on the opioid, but they're not injecting with dirty needles. They're not spending their whole day trying to find their dealer to, and, and, and maybe even have to come up with the money to pay the dealer. And um, they're, they're also not having that euphoria that you get when you inject the, the drug. So they're actually kind of alert. So now they can get a stabilized life. They can get a job. They could resume a more conventional lifestyle. Most people don't understand that addiction is actually a disease. It's it's. There's a difference between addiction and chemical dependency. People have a tendency, all of us, myself included, to use the words interchangeably, but they shouldn't be because a chemical dependency is just when your body has developed a physiologic reliance on the, the, the drug, and if you abruptly withdraw it, you can go into terrible, sometimes life-threatening reactions. Uh, and there are many drugs that provide that, that create that, not just opioids. For example, uh, antidepressants. You've been on antidepressants for a long time. Your doctor will tell you you have to be gradually tapered off. You can't have it abruptly stopped or you can get terrible reactions. Or even beta blockers that people are put on sometimes for high blood pressure. You can't stop that abruptly or you can have a life-threatening reaction. That's dependency. Addiction, on the other hand, is actually on a genetic level a completely different disease. It's a compulsive disease uh, where, you, where you feel... You cannot, even though you know you're damaging yourself, you're destroying your life, you cannot stop yourself. So, for example, a lot of people that we think are addicts who we get detoxed, either through medication-assisted treatment or otherwise, 
who then stay clean and don't go back, many of them probably weren't addicted. They may have thought they were, but they were just dependent, and the reason they were using the drug was to avoid the pains of withdrawal. Whereas uh, people who are addicted, once they're detoxed, there's, they, they, they have to battle for the rest of their lives this tendency to want to go back to it. And it, it's no different than many people are familiar with alcoholism. That's an addictive disorder. So once you've been detoxed from alcohol abuse, alcoholics will tell you, especially those who go through programs like the 12-step program, that they realize they're, they're an addict for life, that they have to always take one day at a time and, and prevent themselves from succumbing to this compulsion to go back to that substance. That's addiction. That's a disease. These are people who are not evil. This isn't a vice. These are people who have a disease no different than any other disease that afflicts people. And when we, we start to view these addicts as people with a disease as opposed to, you know, people who are engaging in evil behavior, I think that makes us more, more inclined to say, what can I do to stop these people from hurting themselves? Because I know that if I just lock them up in cages, I'm not doing them any good at all. And as soon as they get out, they're going to go back to it. Yeah, that's great. Oh, so many great things to think about. Dr. Singer, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Dr. Jeffrey Singer, he's going to join us uh, further on in the season to talk specifically about medication-assisted treatment, which is a very um, has been controversial for a long time in the recovery communities and yet is, is quickly gaining traction as a kind of a gold standard of care for um, drug addiction. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Singer, for joining us. You can access more of Dr. Pleasure. Singer's writing and research at cato.org slash people slash Jeffrey Singer. If you have questions, comments, or want to share your story of how drug use or addiction, incarceration, or any aspect of drug prohibition has affected you or your family, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at enditforgood.com. I'm your host, Christina Dent, with my co-host, Mike Madison, inviting you to join us as we continue exploring, continuing to explore ending our criminal approach to drugs as the best path to reducing harm and offering more people an opportunity to thrive. It's not a perfect solution. It's the best solution um, that we have in a world where we will always have drugs and we can decide, can we give up on our uh, 100% drugs gone forever? Or um, can we actually shift to say, how can we save lives? How can we save families? How can we save people and provide them with a better opportunity to thrive? Join us. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.